0: Well, if there's ever been a day to hold on to message notes and to use message notes, it is today. So I want to encourage everybody to grab your message notes. And then uh, I, would, I would personally, if I were you, keep these in your Bible because I'm going to give you some high-level, kind of big-picture views of the Bible today that are really going to make it exciting to read and help you understand it more than ever before. The goal is to understand the Bible today in a new way, because the more you understand something, the more you enjoy it. I don't know if you're a Mac or a PC person, but how many know every time they do a major software update on your computer, it can be a little frustrating because all of a sudden you just get you know used to how it operates and how it works, and then they update everything and everything changes. And the first couple days are frustrating because you're having to relearn everything and trying to figure out, okay, where do they put this and how does this work? But then after a few days, after you kind of relearn the new software, you actually really begin to enjoy it because you understand it, and you realize it's actually better than the way it was before once I figured it out. Well, that's the way the Bible is. The more you understand it, the more you begin to enjoy it. So I'm going to give you a lot of great information during this series. You're going to learn a lot. There's going to be a lot of fun trivia. Uh, I, I personally believe your mind needs to be convinced, but let me also say that's not enough. Like I can give you a strong case for why the Bible is historically accurate and scientifically accurate and prophetically accurate, and we can make a whole case for why we rely on the Bible and trust the Bible. I'm going to get into that pretty heavy over the next couple of weeks, but it's not enough to just convince your mind that the Bible is true, even though it is. You have to get it into your heart. So even though that there's, there's a lot of teaching during this series, this really more than anything else is a pastoral series. Uh, I know it feels like a teaching series, but it is absolutely a pastoral series, and here's why. Jesus in Matthew 7 said this, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now John chapter 1 last week said that Jesus is the Word, the Word is Jesus, Jesus is God, And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, the entire Bible is the word of God. He says, those who hear these words, and not just hear them, not just read them, but if you put them into practice. So if you take God's word and you weave it into the fabric of your life, you weave it into your marriage, you weave it into your parenting, you weave it into your business, your career, your finances, those who take God's word and and they weave it into their life, it says, they are like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, if you keep reading, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7 that there's storms coming. You're going to go through tragedy in this world. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to go through difficulties. There's going to be seasons of life that are going to be incredibly painful. There are storms coming. And as your pastor, I can't keep the storms out of your life. I wish I could. If there was any way I could keep the storms from coming... I would do it. I can't. But what I can do as your pastor is to teach you how to build your house on a rock, so that when the storms of life come, you can stand through the storms. See, there are a lot of people when the storms come, their their house is just completely torn apart. It, it just crumbles. It, it's built on sand. I can teach you to build your life on something that is true, something that is foundational, something that will stand through any tragedy and any storm. You will ever experience. And it is God's word. And that's why it's critical for us today to learn how to understand the Bible. So it's not something we have to do. Like I don't have to read the Bible as a Christian. I get to. I want to. I've got a desire and a hunger. So that is my goal, is not to just give you a lot of fun information, but to put a hunger inside of you for God's word because you understand the power of it, the potential of it in your life. To do that, we've got to understand it. So I'm going to give you. Kind of three big pictures of the Bible today. I'm going to give you kind of how the Bible was put together. I'm going to give you an overview of the narrative, the story from cover to cover, and then I'm going to reduce it down to one sentence. Before I do, I just want to, I want to give you a couple kind of uh, preliminary things to help you understand. First, in your message notes, the word Bible simply means book. That's, that's the translation of the word Bible. It comes from the Greek word biblia, which comes from the ancient Greek city, which is in modern-day Lebanon, Biblos. Biblos was famous for manufacturing papyrus. Papyrus is where we get the modern-day word for paper. Papyrus was scrolls that they would use to, to write on. They, they would make books out of it. So the Greeks used the name of the city, Biblos, to come up with the Greek word for book. Now, the Bible is not just any book. It is the book of all books. Now, If you're not in one of our sermon-based small groups, let me encourage you this week to go through the questions in the small group guide, because I put a lot of fun trivia on the Bible in there, some stuff that'll make you think about the Bible differently. Uh, One of the thoughts on the Bible, because it's not just any other book, the Bible is the best-selling book in all of history. Over 5 billion copies that we know of have been sold of the Bible. It's fascinating. And there's some some other really cool facts and figures in your small group questions this week, but let me just give you a couple. And again, we're going to go deeper into this over the next coming weeks, because I want you to understand why you can rely, why you can trust on the Bible, uh, how it was was authenticated and put together, why it's historically accurate and reliable, because there's a lot of critique on it today that really doesn't hold any weight when you study it. Uh, Anne Rice, one of my... Uh, favorite life stories, uh, very famous secular atheist, very brilliant woman. She wrote all the interview with the Vampire Chronicles, but what she's famous for is her history. Uh, in all of her, like, even though she writes this vampire fiction stuff, she's very historically accurate in all of the time periods and settings, and she's very well known for being a, a historian, and, and she was a very famous outspoken atheist. Well, she's fascinated by history And she, you know, she she was studying antiquity and she was looking at the Jewish culture. And what fascinated her is how did the Jews survive antiquity when all these other ancient civilizations throughout history never survived? Like, what was it about the Jewish people that allowed them to survive when so many other civilizations perished and we don't even know who they are? So she was studying Jewish history and she got to the time period of the first century ...when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And she was reading Josephus, the Roman historian. And she was fascinated because the temple was the central figure of the Jewish faith... ...and it was destroyed by the Romans around A.D. 70. So in her mind, she thought, I'll read the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... ...because I want to know more about how the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed... Because she was taught, like every good atheist was taught, and there's a lot of people who believe this today, that the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was written about 300, 200 to 300 years after Jesus. That's how the stories grow. Jesus didn't really walk on water. I mean, come on, that, 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 that was a story that was passed on from generation to generation, and the story grows, the urban legend grows, and that's why we have all these crazy things that Jesus did. So that's what she was taught, like every good atheist was taught, that it was written hundreds of years later. So she reads all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's not one mention in all of the gospel of the temple being destroyed, which, which really fascinates her because she's like, why wouldn't they talk about the temple being destroyed? This is such a central figure. Even Jesus prophesied it. It would have validated what, what would they claim Jesus said if they would have mentioned it. Well, the only logical conclusion she could come up with is it hadn't been destroyed when it was written. So she began to study all of this this academic argument against the New Testament, against the validity, against the historical accuracy of it, and what she realized, and this is what she said in her words, the secular atheist, she said, what I found was the most biased scholarship I had ever read. It was assumption layered upon assumption, layered upon assumption, and she actually became a Christian through that process because she couldn't understand why did all of these academics hate somebody they'd never met? She says, they talked about Jesus with so much hatred. No other historical figure did any academic ever talk about with so much hatred in their heart. What was it about this man that they were so against? There were much more evil people in history to hate. What was it about Jesus that all these... And what she discovered was it is the most historically reliable. And that's what we're going to talk about next week is why you can trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because one of the questions somebody asked me is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There were a lot of Gospels written. Why, why do we choose these four and leave all the other ones on the cutting room for? And again, people, but it was, this was in Huffington Post not too long ago. I think Newsweek a couple years ago did an article on this. You know, The Gospel, again, was written hundreds of years later in the Catholic Church. They chose these four because it consolidated their power and helped them control people. Well, you know, the only problem with that theory is it's completely wrong, complete. and I'm going to show you next week because we've actually found, you, know, uh, it's called P52. It's a piece of papyrus from Egypt uh, they call P52 that is, is a copy of the Gospel of John, and it's dated to AD110. So we know that the Gospels were written during the lifetime of the surviving eyewitnesses, and they would have been discredited if anything was untrue. So the Gospels that didn't make you know, the cut, the ones that were left on the cutting room floor, what people say, you know, all the, all the other Gospels, they were the ones written a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus. They were fabrications of the truth. So the ones we have were written during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. That's why we can trust them. And so we're going to get a lot, I mean, you're going to love this series. There's going to be a lot of that throughout this series. Let me just give you a couple more before we jump into the big picture of the Bible. This one's fascinating when you think about uh, the book that we have, the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years. Think about that. If the Bible was finished today, that would mean the Bible began around A.D. 400. I want you to think about everything that has happened since A.D. 400 till now. That is the time period of the Bible being written. So it was written in over 1,600 years in over a dozen different countries on three continents from people of all walks of life. Think about that. Forty different authors that we know of. Three different languages. How did all of these people in all of these different places in these different languages over 1,600 years all write the very same story without contradiction? I mean, think about this. The Quran was written by one person in a period of 23 years. The Analects of Confucius was written by one person in a period of 30 years. Buddha was one man with sayings that he passed down. Look at the Bible. The, the, the writers of the Bible were poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, soldiers, attorneys, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen. What does this tell you about the people God chooses to use? It tells you God uses everybody. It doesn't matter what career you have and what you do for a living. God, God wants to use every person. The Bible was written in caves, in ships, in homes, in palaces, in prisons, and in deserts. How did they all come up with the very same story, the same narrative? And again, we're going to dive more into that next week. But let me answer that quickly. Here, here's the reason they all came up with the same story without contradiction. There were about 40 writers in the Bible, but only one author. There was only one author to the Bible, and that was God. Every word of the Bible was inspired by God. You see, uh, if, if, you, if you look at the life of Jesus, what Jesus believed, what Jesus taught, let me, let me just, let me put this out there. Jesus did not believe in a red-letter Bible, now, what is a red-letter Bible? For those of you who don't know a red-letter Bible we've got plenty available. The staff got very nervous this week. I was talking about this in a staff meeting, and they asked me, are we going to have to get rid of all of our red-letter Bibles because we just ordered a bunch of red letters. No, no, no. I have a red-letter Bible. I love the red-letter Bible. I enjoy the red-letter Bible. Jesus didn't believe in the red-letter Bible. See, here's what the red-letter Bible is. All of the words that Jesus spoke as a human being on earth are in red, and everything else is in black. And, and the problem with that, if, if, you haven't, if you really don't understand the Bible, the problem with that is you begin to think the red letters are somehow more important than the black letters. Like somehow what Jesus said as a human is more important than what Moses said or what Peter said or what Paul said. But according to Jesus, every single word of the Bible is a red letter. Every word of the Bible is from God. When Jesus was quoting the Old Testament, he didn't say Moses said. He said, and God said. Why? Because he considered it the Word of God. every word of it was the Word of God. It's important to understand that. Uh, Paul goes on coaching young Timothy as a pastor and says, "All Scripture." And when he said this, the New Testament hadn't been finished yet, so he was talking about primarily the Old Testament, is inspired by God. And I actually have a message in a couple of weeks coming up on why we still believe in the Old Testament because a lot of people are like, do we need the Old Testament? We have the New Testament?" Yes, you need the Old Testament. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. He taught the Old Testament, I'm going to show you that in a couple weeks. But he says all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful. It means that there are 40 different writers, but there was one author, and it's very, very useful to your life to teach you what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Let me put it like this. We live in a world today that wants to update the Bible, amend the Bible, change the Bible. We look at portions of the Bible and say, well, this is not socially acceptable anymore. It's kind of intolerant. Uh, We don't really like that. So we're going to kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we believe. Here's the problem with that. You don't trust the Bible. You trust your feelings and can i tell you and i know this goes against like our you know freedom you know independence american attitude of like you know uh i am my own person you don't want to trust yourself you you don't want to trust your you, you don't want to trust what you feel about the bible like like i like this and i don't like that this one feels good to me that doesn't feel good to me so i'm going to i i'm going to i'm going to build my faith on my feelings in other words and not the truth of God's Word. Can I tell you, the culture we live in changes. God's Word doesn't change. And whether it's socially acceptable or not, this is God's Word, and it's true. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but let me just prove to you for just a moment that you cannot trust your feelings. I, I know we, you feel like you know this is 2019, and you're enlightened, and you have a degree, and you've been to school, and you should be able to trust kind of what you think is right and wrong. You can't trust your feelings. Let me prove it to you. How many of you, when you were 20 years old, How many of you at 20 years old believe that the 15-year-old version of yourself was a total idiot? Come on, raise your hand. How many believe that to be true? How many of you at 30 years old believe the 20-year-old version of you was an idiot? How many of you at 50 believe the 30-year-old version was an idiot? I am convinced that if you lived to be 150 years old, you would think the 80-year-old version of yourself was a total idiot. That's why you can't trust your feelings. Your feelings change every five to 10 years. I mean, what you believe and what you feel, it changes constantly. You need to build your life on something other than your feelings, something that doesn't change, something that is true, something that will stand the test of time. It's powerful. It's powerful. It goes on to say, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. We need that in our life. God uses it. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So if you want to be a part of his people, then you've got to allow God to use his word in your life to equip you and to train you and to teach you and to coach you and to instruct you. And, and, and if, you, if you have this attitude, well, I like God and I like Jesus and I like the whole heaven thing, but I don't know about, you know, bang the Bible and everything in there. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't work that way. This is God's Word. It is a manual of truth for our life. And I hope over the next few weeks, this actually began as a four-week series. It's now a seven-week series because the more I study, it's just so much good stuff to share with you that I can't get it all out in four weeks. But I hope that you have a new love and passion for His Word once you understand how reliable it is, how accurate it is, how it was put together, how it was made. It's, and it works. It works. You, you look at socioeconomic history, every nation in the world that has applied Judeo-Christian values. Judeo-Christian is simply a fancy way of saying the principles in the Bible. You look at every nation in the world historically that has applied Judeo-Christian values, and those nations have been blessed and prospered versus the ones that haven't. I mean, that, that's just, that's just, you know, financial history of the world it works. The Bible, whether you believe it or not, it works. So what I want to do today is I want to give you some things that really unlocked the Bible for me, that made it come alive, that got very, very exciting. Like one of the things that I didn't know when I began to read the Bible and it became very, very helpful once I understood it, is the Bible is not written chronologically. Like if you start in the very beginning of the Bible and you read it cover to cover, it's not in chronological order and it will confuse you if you don't understand that. The Bible is actually put together in groups of books. Now, let me give you a resource that I found recently uh, over the last couple of years that I absolutely love. I mean, this has been one of the, the very, very helpful things for me and for many people. It's called thebibleproject.com, and what thebibleproject.com is is they've made hundreds of videos on the Bible—very short, very simple, very easy videos to watch and understand. There's a video for every single book of the Bible, helping you understand that book, uh, just insight, how it's put together, overviews, themes of the Bible. And I want you to watch just a very quick kind of overview video about what they're trying to accomplish, because what they did is they got a group of scholars and academics and theologians and artists together to just help us understand the Bible. So watch this with me.
1: So the Bible is one of the most influential books of all time, but what is it exactly? Exactly.
2: Yeah, some people treat the Bible like a divine behavior manual that dropped out of heaven. Others use it like a theology dictionary, written to answer all of our questions about God. And others still think of it like a grab bag of spiritual one-liners and inspiring stories.
1: But here's the thing, the Bible isn't written as a rule book or theology dictionary, or even as a collection of inspirational
2: writings. Then what is the Bible?
1: Well, open up the Bible to page
2: one and read the opening words. In the beginning. Now,
1: turn to the last chapter of the Bible where you can read this.
2: And they reigned forever and ever. Okay, so the Bible's telling a story from beginning to end.
1: Yeah, it's one epic narrative about how God has appointed humanity as his partners to oversee this amazing world. It's about how we've ruined that partnership and how God is restoring us and our world through Jesus.
2: Okay, one story, but there's a lot going on. Many plots, many characters, all written in many different books.
1: But once you see how every book has a careful literary design, you won't get lost. And you can see how it fits into the overall
2: storyline. There are also important repeated themes that weave through the entire biblical story.
1: Yeah, like the covenants that God makes with people.
2: Or the hope for a human who
1: will confront evil. Or how God's justice will one day make all things right and every theme culminates in the story of Jesus.
2: There are also a lot of strange words in the Bible, words we do not use in normal language.
1: But when we take time to understand them, we discover profound ideas that contribute to the overall biblical story.
2: So it takes work to know how to read the different types of literature in the Bible.
1: But once you do learn how, you'll discover that the Bible is a work of literary genius that can transform how you live and how you think about everything.
2: So that's what the Bible Project is all about, to help people see the Bible as one unified story that leads to Jesus.
0: I'm telling you, very helpful, very handy. I would encourage you, like when you're getting into new books of the Bible, watch the videos on the website that relate to that book of the Bible. It'll really bring what you're reading to life when you understand a little bit more about what you're reading, why you're reading, and how you're reading it. Very, very helpful. So what I want to do now is first, I'm going to give you three things I said. I'm going to overview the Bible for you. I'm going to give you the narrative, and I'm going to reduce it down to one Sentence first, let me overview the Bible how it was put together. We're going to start with the Old Testament again. This is in your handout. Uh, The Old Testament begins the first five books with a section that we call the Law. The Law this is Moses' writing, the Torah, the Pentateuch. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is the story of Adam and Eve. This is the story of Noah and the flood. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Joseph getting sold into slavery. This is the children of Israel, slaves in Egypt. This is Moses coming to Pharaoh, let my people go, the crossing of the Red Sea, all the way up to the promised land, when the children of Israel come back to the land that God gives them. Then we jump into a section of books called history, or the historical section. It's 12 books, Joshua through Esther. This is the history of the Old Testament, the history of the children of Israel. They have a group, they're in the promised land now, they have a group of judges ruling over them, but they feel left out because all the other countries have kings, and we want a king. And God says, listen, I'm your king. Like, no, no, we want a king like the other countries have kings. Give us a man-made king. So God gives them a king, Saul, and then David, and then a bunch of other kings, which created a lot of problems. And so there's this back and forth from like, we're going to serve God, to we're going to turn our backs on God, then we're going to serve God again, then we're going to turn our backs on God which leads them to the end of the Old Testament, where they go into exile. They, they're taken away as slaves into Babylon. Now, if you look at the Bible chronologically, the book of Esther would be the very last book of the Old Testament because it records the last historical happenings of the Old Testament as exiles in a foreign land. Now, the book of Esther is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's fascinating. You've got you know, the, the king of Persia, Xerxes, who you know, gets rid of his wife, he gets tired of his wife, gets rid of her, has a beauty contest, marries this little Jewish girl, Esther, who saves you know, their entire people. Now, just some fun, uh, just something fun for you today. How many of you saw the, the movie 10, 15, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, 300? Remember that bloody, violent, gory you know movie? Like, oh, I'm a Spartan, you know, he kicks them over the edge. Remember that movie? <laughs> Gerard Butler, 300. That, remember, it was Xerxes, the king of Persia, who was invading. Remember Xerxes in the movie? That was the guy Esther married in the Bible. See, when you study ancient history, it all intersects with the Bible because the Bible is part of ancient history. Now, hopefully, he didn't actually look like that in real life because <laughs> that would have been scary for Esther because he was not a good guy in the movie, uh, probably not a great guy in real life, but hopefully not as bad as the movie made him out to be. Anyways, that's the guy in history that Esther marries in the book of Esther, because all the history intersects with the Bible. Then you got the next section of books called poetry, the poetical section. This is five books. You have Job, and then Psalms, all the writings of you know King David and the other psalmists. Then you have the wisdom literature of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Now, what's really fun is they sell what you call a chronological Bible, where you can read the Bible chronologically. You can actually. On the YouVersion app that we use as a church, you can sign up for a chronological reading plan. What's really cool about that is it'll take all of like, the psalms and, and, and the prophets of the Old Testament and it inserts them historically where they would have been written. So you're reading in like the book of Kings about David or Samuel about David, and all of a sudden it jumps to a psalm because it's right when he would have written that psalm in the timeline of history. So it's fun to read a chronological Bible because it kind of reorders everything in its historical order. Then you got the prophetical section of the Old Testament. It's the last 17 books, and it's divided between the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. Now, the major prophets are not major because they're more important. They're major because they're a lot longer. They're like 50, 60 chapters in length, whereas the minor prophets are like three to four chapters in length. And then you have 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. Malachi being the last book in our Old Testament. Now, after Malachi, or or after the chronological end of the Old Testament, there's 400 years of complete silence where God does not speak. There's no recorded word of God for 400 years until the time of Jesus. During that 400 years, the children of his Israel are allowed to go back home. They come out of exile. They go back to Israel. They rebuild the temple. Uh, During that period is Alexander the Great and his whole empire. What's really fascinating about that is the book of Daniel in the Old Testament prophesied about Alexander the Great, talks about Alexander the Great, a couple hundred years before he was born. One of the things we're going to do in a couple weeks is I'm going to show you the prophetical accuracy of the Bible, how there's hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that have come true exactly as the Bible said they would hundreds of years after they were written. And the prophecies that are remaining are prophecies that are happening, uh, could happen in our lifetime or in the future, but that's kind of where they're at in the timeline, and you look at the odds of that mathematically, it's just impossible. It's just absolutely impossible, the odds that these prophecies would have come true. But Daniel talks about Alexander the Great hundreds of years before he was actually born. Then you've got the, the rise of the Roman Empire, and that's where we pick up with the New Testament. The first section of the New Testament we call the gospel. The gospel is the Greek word for good news. Well, what was the good news? That God gave Jesus. That's the good news. Jesus is here. Jesus is here to save us. And that's four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Next week, we're going to talk, again, more on why you can trust these four Gospels and why and how they were written during the actual lifetime of surviving eyewitnesses. So if this stuff didn't happen, it would have been discredited, and we wouldn't even know about it today, because there are plenty of religious figures that we've never heard of. Why? Because they were discredited. These were authenticated because of how they were written, and that's why they Survive. That's why we can trust them. Now, the way the gospel is, it's, it's four different uh, eyewitness accounts of the same things happening. That's why you read one story in one gospel, it'll include details that another gospel with the very same story will leave out. It's simply who they talked to, who they interviewed, what they saw, because they all saw things from different vantage points. So that's, that's how the gospels were put together. Then you have the next section, which is the historical section, Of the New Testament. It's one book called the Book of Acts. It's the story of the church. So after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, the Book of Acts picks up. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the Book of Acts. And it tells us how the church was built, how the church was established. This is actually our model uh, for how we do church. We, We model ourselves as a church off of the Book of Acts. During this time period, they planted churches all throughout Asia Minor, all throughout the Middle East. They, they planted all of these churches, and then the apostles would write letters to the churches. And these letters, we call them epistles. And there were 21 letters that were recorded as, as part of the New Testament in our Bible. And these are letters that, we call them books, but they're actually letters. They were letters that were written to these different churches to teach them how to live out Christianity, to teach them doctrine, to kind of take you know, what Jesus did and expound upon that. They didn't add anything new from what Jesus did. They just kind of brought clarity and explanation to it to teach us how to live out the Christian life. And then the final part of the Bible, of the New Testament, is the book of Revelation, which is prophecy and the word revelation the greek for it is apokalypto which means apocalypse or the revealing this shows us how everything's going to play out it shows us how everything's going to end uh, th- this is this is what's going to happen and how it's going to happen now let me just say that th- this is this is a th- this is something you want to pay attention to but you also want to understand why and how it was written because let me say something about the book of Revelations. The Revelations is not a code book to decipher end-time prophecy. I know a lot of people kind of use it that way, like this is a code book for, for how we decipher like, the end-time prophecy. That wasn't the purpose of Revelation. If you, you can do some of that with Revelation, but that's not the point or the purpose. If you don't understand the point or the purpose of Revelation, then you're not, you're not going to enjoy reading it, you're not going to enjoy studying it, and you're probably not going to get it a whole lot if you study it. See, here's the thing about Revelation that was not written to us in 2019. The book of Revelation, if you really want to enjoy it, read it, study it, you've got to understand it was written to one specific group of people at one specific time for one specific purpose. You have to understand that to enjoy it. Who is it written to? The early Christians. When? The first century. Why? Nero just became the emperor of Rome and Nero began torturing and killing Christians in the most unimaginable and horrific ways. So the book of Revelation was written to give them hope. The whole book is about hope. The whole book was if you endure, if you stand strong, if you hold on to your faith, this is what's coming. That's what the book was for. Because we say, one of the things we say is the blood of the martyrs spread the gospel. So the blood of the early Christians is what built the gospel, what built Christianity. Now, technically, it wasn't like their blood going into the ground that kind of sprouted up new Christians. That's not, not what that means. What it means is how they died. You see, when you study the first century, the, the early Christians, they did not die like normal human beings died. See, when you take a normal human being and you torture them and you kill them in the most horrific way imaginable, a normal human being will beg for mercy, they'll scream for their life, they'll say whatever they need to say to get you to stop. The early Christians, when they tortured and killed them, they sang songs of praise, they sang songs of worship, they forgave the people who were torturing them. You see, when you watched a Christian die, it affected you. It messed with you because you realize, I couldn't do what they're doing. There's no, They have something inside of them that is stronger than the world they live in because there's no other way you could die like that. And what began to happen is everybody wanted what the Christians had because it, 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 was, it was not of this world. Like, people don't die that way. You understand what I'm saying? And the reason they were able to die that way was the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gave them the hope to know that if you endure, if you endure, this is what's to come, powerful. Now, let me give you the plot, the narrative. We call it the mirror image of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible, cover to cover, mirrors itself. This is the narrative of the Bible. Now, on the screen, it's going to be a little small, uh, so you're going to have to squint a little bit or catch it on YouTube later. Uh, but I want I want you to see the mirror image of this. You open the Bible. You begin at the very beginning of the story. You have God and righteous man in paradise. This is Adam and Eve living with God in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. Everything was wonderful. They had incredible relationship with God. They walked with God. They talked with God. They, 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 just, they had fellowship with God until Satan and sin enter into the story. And what sin does is it creates separation. Sin creates distance. Satan and sin come in, and, and now Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They can't walk with God anymore. They don't have fellowship with God anymore. There's now a distance between them and God. And you know this to be true. Until sin is dealt with in our life, we always feel a distance between us and God. We feel like God is a million miles away. We feel like God is here, and I'm way over here. And you're always going to feel that way until sin is genuinely dealt with in your life. And the problem is sin produces chaos. Sin produces chaos in your life. So the next thing that happens is the world is judged and destroyed because it got out of hand. The world got crazy. Sin grew. Man became so wicked that God had to bring a flood because he could not allow them to continue living with just the perversion and the sin and and the wickedness that was happening. And so the world is judged and destroyed. Now, you come back onto the scene... You have one people, one language, one new kind of of race all from Noah. And what they began to do is they got wicked again and decided we're going to create this one world government system. That was the Tower of Babel. They were all with one voice, one mind. They began to bring this tower all the way to heaven. God said that because they're of one mind, because they're unified, because they have one language, nothing they propose to do will be impossible. So, they, so they're trying to build this tower. So God has to come down and confuse their language and, and scatter them across the earth. And that's why we have all these different nations and cultures now. So what God has to do is he has a plan. And so he chooses one of these nations, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sets them up as his holy people so that he could create system, he could create order, and he could begin the process of his plan to redeem mankind. Now, the problem with this is the law was an external law. It, wasn't, it, it was, it was, it was ten, cam, 10 commandments on tablets of stone. It was rules. It was regulations. It was commands. And it was all external. It was all about your behavior. And the problem is nobody could do it. They couldn't pull it off. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. It, it, really, what God did was give us the law to frustrate us, to show us that we can't ever be good enough. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how well we obey. It's not about how well we follow the rules. No matter how well we follow the rules, we will never be good enough for God. So he introduces his plan, the solution, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus enters into the narrative, he enters into the story. And what Jesus does for us is he, is he flips the Old Testament. He, he, he basically changes the entire approach to God. One of the greatest verses to me in the Bible illustrating this is Romans 4 verse 5. It says, people are counted as righteous not because of their work. The entire Old Testament, you were counted as righteous because of your work. The entire Old Testament, you were counted as righteous by how well you obeyed, how well you followed the rules, how how closely you did all of the regulations. In the New Testament, he says, no, 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 that's not how we're counted as righteous anymore. It's because of our faith in a God who forgives sinners. It's a beautiful new story because of Jesus Christ. And so God establishes what is the church, his new chosen people. So in the Old Testament, it was the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, we have the 12 disciples who established the church, God's chosen people. All of us who have given our life to Christ are part of now his chosen people, his plan for planet earth. Now, this is exactly where we're currently at in history. If you want to know where do we fit into the narrative, where are we right now in 2019 in the big picture story of the Bible, this is exactly where we're at with things left to happen, things left to come. The next thing on the list is they're going to create another one world government system. We already see that beginning to form in the world, one world currency, uh, different, you know, like the, the European Union kind of setting the precedent for this. This is Partly why Russia is right now heavily involved in the Middle East. When I was in Israel last year, we met with a major from the Israeli army, and he began to explain Russia's strategy for why they're so heavily involved in the Middle East and why there's all these military partnerships forming. This is all about you know, the Antichrist is going to broker a peace treaty and a peace deal and bring the whole world together into a one-world currency, the mark of the beast. All of that taking place where, where, where it just gets worse and worse and worse until the next thing that takes place is the world will be judged and destroyed a second time, not with water, this time by fire. Now, let me give you the good news. For those of us that have given our life to Jesus, the Bible says we're not going to be here for that. The Bible says we're going to be taken to heaven before that takes place, and what what we call the rapture. The rapture is like two people are driving down the street, and all of a sudden, one person disappears, Two people are sleeping in a bed, and one person disappears. There was that movie with Nicolas Cage a couple years ago, like the airplane, and all of a sudden, half the airplane was gone, and the pilot disappeared, and the airplane came down because the rapture took place, and that's the way the Bible describes it. Those who have surrendered their life to Jesus are immediately going to be just gone, just disappeared, and everyone else is going to be left, and it's going to freak out the world because you know, imagine what it's going to be like when, when like, you know, boom, all these people just disappear off planet Earth. It's going to cause chaos. It's going to be a mess. And let me just say one thing about that. You don't want to miss that flight. (laughs) That's like one one flight you don't want to miss. Trust me on it. You don't want to get left behind for what's coming next because it's going to get ugly. It's going to get nasty. But thank God he rescues us before all of that takes place. Then you have Satan and sin exit. God takes Satan and sin and throws him into the pit of hell forever. And then finally, God and redeem man in paradise. This is God's ultimate plan, to take mankind, redeem them, and live forever with them in paradise. Now, the Bible calls paradise, the Bible calls heaven, the new earth. So here's what God's plan is. God's plan is to take planet earth and restore planet earth back to its original Garden of Eden-like state. And then you and I that have given our lives to Jesus will live with God forever on a restored planet earth without sin. Earth in its Garden of Eden-like condition, the oceans will turn back to fresh water from salt water because there's no more sin. All of animals and and, and all of nature will be in harmony and in unity, and you don't have to fear. There will be no more you know dangerous animals out there. There's just going to be total harmony on Earth and enjoying the beauty of Earth. I mean, can you imagine Earth the way it was originally intended to be before we messed it up? Going back to that condition, that's where we live forever with God. And there's all these weird misconceptions about heaven that have really perverted this, but heaven's going to be awesome. Like, if you knew how incredible it was, like, it's not white, ghost-like existence floating in the clouds. That's not heaven. It's not the Bible. The Bible describes something that is so, in- like, if you really understood what the Bible described, like, you'd want to go there today. Like, you'd be like, Jesus, can you come at lunch? Like, like I'm ready. Like, like, take us home now, if you really understood how absolutely amazing. So it's funny to me that we call death afterlife. We, we really should call death life, and we should call this before life, because we really haven't started living yet until we really get there, because that's where it's going to get good. So this is the narrative. This is, this is the plot. This is the big picture, cover to cover, of the Bible. Let me reduce it down to one sentence quickly, and then we'll be out of here. What is the subject of the Bible? The subject of the Bible. Now, many people say the subject of the Bible would be us. You know, God created man. We're not the subject. We're the direct object. The subject of the Bible is Jesus. Jesus. Every word of the Bible is about Jesus, not just the New Testament, all of the Old Testament. One of my favorite study Bibles that we have in our cafe is we call it the Jesus Bible. And what I love about the Jesus Bible is you're reading the Old Testament, it shows you Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament because he's all throughout the the whole book is about him. Every page is about him. And I'm going to talk about this more next week. If you don't understand Jesus, the Bible will be very destructive in your life. Like If you try to study the Bible and you don't understand the purpose of Jesus, this book will do more harm than good. This book will create religion. It'll create ugliness. If you don't understand the purpose of Jesus, this book is going to damage your life. I promise you. We've seen it. You have to interpret the Bible through understanding Jesus. He put it like this. You search the scriptures, and he's talking about the Old Testament here. Because you think they give you eternal life. Like you think that somehow, you know, studying the old testament and following all the rules. No, 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 you miss the point. It's all about me. Like every word of it points to me. So we read the Bible and find Jesus. So Jesus is the subject. What is the verb of the Bible? What's the if we reduce it down to one sentence? What's the verb of the Bible? Well, many people would say love. Love would be the verb of the Bible. Well, that's wrong. Love is the motivating force behind the verb but the verb is much greater than love let me show it to you john 3:16 for this is how god loved the world love is the motivator he gave he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life so let me let me let me reduce it down to a sentence cuz this will change the way you view the bible the subject is jesus the direct object is us he did it all for us we we're the object of his affection the motivating force is love but the verb of the Bible is give. It's give. He gave so we give. When you sign up to follow Jesus to become a Christian, you're signing up to become a giver. You're signing up to live a life of generosity. Generous with your time. Generous with your talent. Generous with your energy. Generous with your resources. That It's all about He gave so we give. And it And think about it, he didn't just give Jesus to die for you. Like it's so easy to say, Jesus died for me. No, Jesus was slaughtered for you. Jesus was tortured to the point you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. And then they nailed him to a cross. He didn't just die for you, he was slaughtered for you. What is the only natural response to that level of giving? We exist to give. This is why we give... To plant churches. This is why we give to kids in Mexico. This is why we give to China and what God is doing over there through our missionaries. This is why we give to serve the people of our community. This is why we give to serve our military. You know, in Thanksgiving and Christmas, this is why, you know, we're giving the foster kids. Many of you know that we've been developing a foster care intervention program, we've been doing all the research and the due diligence. Well, I'm happy to report yesterday we pulled the trigger. It's now green light. We're going for it. Hopefully in the next month or two, we're going to be able to share some stories with you of families that we kept together because the majority of kids who end up in foster care, it's not because of bad parenting. It's because of poverty issues. And so as a church, we can step in, take care of the poverty issues, and keep families together. Why? Because we exist to give. Our entire life is about giving. Let me close with this verse. We know know John 3.16. Look at 1 John 3.16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. He gave his life for us, so what's our response? We also ought to give up our lives. Jesus gave his life, so we all... See, when you sign up to be a Christian, you no longer have a right to live a self-absorbed life. When you give your life to Jesus, you give up the rights to selfishness. You, you give up the rights to just take care of you and, and your own. no. We give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I pray that this message will land deep within every single one of us. God, as we look at the big picture of the Bible and then we reduce it down, God, let it change the way we live. Let it, let it first, God, give us a hunger for your word to get excited about diving in and studying and And just learning it, God, living it, loving it, learning it. But more than that, God, let us, as we look at the Bible, the verb, the theme of the Bible is, You were a giver, you were a giver, you were a giver. All throughout the Bible, you were a giver. And God, we're supposed to look like our Father, and so we want to look like you. So let us commit our lives to giving. Because that is what Christianity is all about. We are givers. We are givers. We lay down our life for other people. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close today with one song. During the song, our prayer team is be available. If you filled out a prayer card today, I want to encourage you to bring it forward and let somebody pray with you before you turn it in. One of the best things you can do is just have somebody pray with you personally before you turn that card in. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not right with God, you feel like there is a distance between you and God and and you want to have a relationship with God, come talk to somebody on our prayer team. They'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to surrender your life to Him. They'd love to pray with you. Or if there's anything else going on in your life and you just need someone to pray with you today, they'd love to pray with you. They'll be here during the song, at the end of the song. We're going to sing one song and then we'll be dismissed.